0: Our passage this morning is 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 13, the whole chapter. And actually, I'll start with uh, the last verse of chapter 12 from last week, because it really is a hinge and a transition into this morning's passage. If you want to follow along, that should be page 959, and the Bible's there in your seats. Uh, As you find that, we come to a passage familiar to Many, not only in the church, but to those outside, perhaps you've heard this passage at a wedding, or seen it on a poster, or a bit of art week, artwork in your home, and yet uh, the place that it comes from is God's word. And so let us attend to the word of God together as God's people, may his spirit bless our hearing of it. The end of verse 31 in chapter 12 through all of chapter 13, and I will show you a still more excellent way. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray that the Lord would attend our study of this passage. Let's pray. Gracious God, you gave these words to your servant Paul to give to your church in Corinth and through that church in Corinth to all of your church and all of the world throughout time. Lord, as you are with us by your spirit, would you instruct us from your word? Would you teach us? Allow us to respond with joy and thanksgiving, to be educated, to be convicted where necessary. Lord, help me to speak your truth for your people, for your glory. Amen. Have you ever walked into a room only to stop and say, Why did I come in here? Or you go to the hardware store or to the grocery store and get home and empty out your bags full of stuff only to realize you forgot the one thing that you went to the hardware or the grocery store for. It's pretty common to human existence. To get distracted by shiny things or things that we want or things that we had forgotten about, and so to want to bring those things home with us. It's the same for the Corinthians. There are good things in the spiritual gifts. There are good things in appreciating eloquent debate, good things about recognizing the various people that God has sent to them like Apollos and Peter and Paul for the preaching of the gospel. But they've forgotten some of the main things. It's not a bad thing to go to the grocery store and come home with chips. Chips are a good thing. I'm excited when Rebecca goes to the store for milk and comes home with chips not that she forgets the milk, that tends to be me. But for all the good of the chips or, or, or the extra tools that weren't the reason you went to the hardware store, if we forget the main thing, it can ruin what we were setting out to do. The kids won't have cereal if they don't have milk. The project won't get finished if we don't have the right tools. Paul is not condemning the Corinthians for valuing the spiritual gifts. He commends the gift. He celebrates their gifts. He commends them to consider other gifts that they might need. But their goal of being spiritual people is not being met by these particular values and these particular gifts. They have equated eloquence and prominence, physical self-denial and tongue-speaking, with the spiritual life. In many ways, it seems that they thought, well, to be spiritual is to be like angels because angels are in heaven, and so if we're like the angels, then we've achieved the spiritual life. But to be a spiritual people is to be like those who have come to know God, who have come to know God through his spirit and are transformed to be like God through that relationship with him by his spirit. This is the more excellent way for all the good of gifts, for all the good of ministry, for all the gift of philosophy and prophecy, the more excellent way, the way for all Christians, the way that the Corinthians need to go back to the store and come back with, is the way of love. Paul doesn't want them to get distracted, to get off mission, to lose their way, so he draws their attention to love. He tells them of the necessity of love. He puts on display before them the beauty of love and casts their vision forward to the future of love. And so this morning, as we want to be spiritual people, on the spiritual path that God has called us to, as Christians responding to the good news of the gospel that Jesus was crucified for our sins and rose from the dead with victory over the sins, we need to consider the way of love. This morning, Paul begins first as he explains what the way of love is like to point out the necessity of love. Love is not an add-on, it's not an option, or just part of the mix. He portrays love in this passage as essential. He does it by giving these examples. He, he says, first of all, for, uh, if you have tongues of men and angels, and he talks about himself here. One of the things we need to remember is that Paul doesn't condemn tongues at this time. Paul apparently talked in tongues, he says later in the letter. But he gives this rhetorical situation, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. We, We know the difference, right, between noise and music. If you have toddlers and drums, you know the difference. Paul says, if I speak in tongues, but I don't do it in love, it's just noise. Then then he talks about these great acts of knowledge and prophetic power. He says, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and have all faith so as to remove mountains. Think of this as as a dramatic expression of faith and miraculous power. If I demonstrate great prophetic faith and power, but have not love, I am nothing. And if I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. These great acts of service, these great acts of faith, these great acts of religious experience, if they are not of love, he says they're nothing. Notice the contrast, how often all shows up here. Verse 2 If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries, all knowledge, have all faith, if I give away all I have and deliver up my body to be fully consumed, but if I don't have love, I am nothing. Notice that Paul doesn't say without love, it's not quite enough. It's, It's almost there, but not yet. It's nothing. Love for the Christian, love for the follower of Jesus, love for the church is an all-or-nothing thing. If we don't have love, we don't have anything. We don't have status, we don't have merit, we don't have effect for the good of others. We cannot serve God, we cannot obey God without love because love is the essence of obedience. In another letter to a different group of Christians, in Romans 13.10, Paul says, love is the fulfilling of the law. But when Paul says that here in 1 Corinthians 13 and in Romans 13, he's not expressing a new idea. He's repeating what Jesus said. Jesus, as we read in our reading of the law this morning, said, of the two commandments. We're to love God with all that we are. We're to love our neighbor as ourselves. And he said, all the law and prophets rest on these. That the whole of the Old Testament story, the whole of the Old Testament instruction, all that the prophets were doing and calling God's people to obedience and proclaiming that salvation was based out of the call to love God and love one another. Love is Obedience. Therefore, we cannot obey God without love. This is what was at the heart with Jesus' conversation with the rich young ruler. You might remember he wanted to know what he needed to do to be saved, and Jesus asked him, well, what are the commandments? And he lists off the commandments. He says, yeah, I've obeyed those commandments. And so Jesus passed him on the head and says, good job, you're saved. No, he asks him a question. He gives him further instruction. He says, go, sell all that you have, and give to the poor. The man thought he was obedient, he thought he was pleasing God, but what he lacked was love. Love for God that said, what God wants me to do, what this prophet, this teacher of God is telling me to do, is less important than holding on to my riches and wealth. He loved those riches more than he loved God. And the result of obedience would have been to bless the poor to see them fed to see them clothed to see them sheltered and he loved the riches more than he loved his brothers and sisters and his neighbor if it is not of love it is not of god we can't claim to be spiritual people we can't pl- claim to be religious people we can't claim to be obedient people if we have not experienced the love of god and not are responding by enacting that same of love towards others. John one, excuse me, First John four says, "Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love." Without love, there is an absence of God. God is love, and in his love. He sent Jesus into the world so that we could know his love and be changed by his love and to those who are enabled as his spirit works in us to love others the way that he does. There is no spiritual life, there is no religious life that is pleasing to God if we are not acting in the love that God has shown us. It means for us today we can teach our kids the Bible We can memorize and explain the Westminster Confession of Faith. We can stand firm for the biblical sexual ethic in a day and age of confusion. We can share the gospel with our neighbor. But if it is not of love, it is nothing. Love is a requirement, a necessity for being a Christian. Now, it's not something we've enacted for ourselves, we, we don't gin up this love, as I, as I quoted earlier, we love because God first loved us. But if we are acting apart from love, it means that we are trying to act apart from God. That we are trying to impress others, or serve others, or convince others, apart from the very power that we have to know God, His Spirit. And so as we consider the necessity of love and its requirement for all that we do as God's people, when we are lacking love, where should we go? To God. He is the source of love. He is the example of love. We love because he first loved us. Now here's the good news. Lots of things that are necessary, that we need, that are required for us, we tend to avoid. Exercise, vegetables, shots. But love is not like that. Not only is it necessary, it's something that is beautiful. Paul, as he is addressing the Corinthians, draws their attention to the weakness and the distraction of their spiritual walk by pointing to the beauty of love. Now, as Paul begins in verse 4 to describe what love is like, his style intensifies. He gets more poetic and don't have time to go into the way that the Greek shows that. But I think the fact that we hear this passage in weddings, that we see it up on people's walls, that it's uh, reflected in so much of our culture, shows that we understand what's beautiful here. And, And Paul could have merely argued for the superiority of love, right? Paul is a great philosophical mind. He spent time with the philosophers in Greece talking about various forms of philosophy, but he doesn't choose to argue with them. He instead chooses to put love on display, to paint a verbal picture of its beauty. And as he does so, he shows us that love is beauty towards others. Now, in our day and age, we tend to not think of love that way. In their passage, the word for love here is, is agape. And you may be familiar with the fact that in the Greco-Roman world and using the Greek language, there were three main words for love. There was uh, romantic love, eros. There was uh, brotherly love. And then agape was a, a higher form of love. And, and Paul is describing agape, this word that's used to translate God's love in the Hebrew Testament, to describe love, because he is saying that all these forms of love should be judged by this form of love. But because we in our culture have one word for love, and we tend to prioritize romantic love so much, we tend to put our picture of love through that lens. What am I attracted to? What's appealing to me? I love that because I want it. Because I think it will help me. Because it's pretty to me. But the love that's described here is not about recognizing the beauty in others for ourselves, but it's about offering something beautiful, something good, something true to others. Here's what Paul says love offers. Love is patient. That patience is not just sitting in the waiting room, twiddling thumbs. The language there is better translated long-suffering. Love puts up with people who attack us, or hurt us, or injure us for a long time. We are willing to endure for the sake of others. Not only do we endure what people do to us, but then in in like response, love is kind. It seeks to bless, to give them that which is good. Love does not envy. Love does not look at the good of our neighbor and say, I wish I had that for me. No, instead... Love celebrates the good and the blessing that other people have. When we receive something good, we don't use that as an opportunity to build ourselves up so that we look better compared to other people. Love is not arrogant. It doesn't puff itself up and say, look at me. Nor is it rude. We hear that word rude and we think of people maybe using bad manners. This is more strong language than that. It's not unseemly. It it doesn't hurt the sensibilities of other people. It doesn't disturb them. It's not inappropriate. Love does not insist on its own way. Instead, it seeks the way of other people. It is not irritable. When someone frustrates you, it doesn't operate about what you did to me, but instead is patient and enduring. It is not resentful. Not only is it not quick in response, but it doesn't store up what people have done against us, nursing that over a long time. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. This word here is translated other places, evil. It's not just, it doesn't rejoice in things that are disobedient to God, but it doesn't rejoice when people reap the consequences of their actions. When that person at work who is so annoying finally frustrates the boss so much that they get fired, our response should not be to delight in that, because that's not loving. We want their good. Rather, love rejoices in what is true. Love bears all things. That is, love endures constantly. It believes all things. Not that we're credulous and just believe everything. This is about faith. Rather than being cynical, we trust and we assume the best. Love hopes all things. We are constantly hopeful for what is good and what God has said will happen, and we endure all things. Even the persecution of other people, their slights against us in order that we might do them good. Paul is displaying the beauty of love not in getting what we want, not in getting out of the situation for us, not in making ourselves better, but in offering the good and the true and the beautiful to others. In this list, Paul is seeking the good of the Corinthians because he is confronting them, though. The list Paul has here is not an exhaustive list. He hasn't said everything that there is to say scripturally about love but it is representative and part of the reason he chooses these things and maybe part of the reason he describes love by saying what it isn't is because he's highlighting the aspects of love that are lacking in the Corinthians but instead of just berating them he displays the beauty of love in considering how they might be able to hear of their shortcomings to compare this picture of the beauty of love against their, their scrawling attempts at love. Love is patient, they're not. Love, it does not resent, yet they take their brothers and sisters to court. Love is not rude or inappropriate, and yet there are people in the church having sexual relations with prostitutes. It is not self-seeking, seeking its own way, but taking each other to court. It is not proud. I follow Apollos. I follow Paul. Hey, it's time to celebrate the Lord's Supper. You know what I should do? I should eat all the best food for myself. And who cares what the poor and the slave get? Yet this is love on display because Paul, instead of punching down at them, gives them a picture of the beauty of love so they can recognize where they are weak and instead seek the good. Seeking their good in a way that they can hear. This is the nature of love. It is an investment not in what is attractive, but what is worthwhile. That there are all kinds of people who we will say they're not lovely in their appearance, in their disposition, they have little of nothing to offer back to us. And if that was the case, if we define love as what is attractive to us or what people can give to us or what we want to see in other people, then we will rarely love because most people can give little back to us. But as C.S. Lewis says of biblical love, love is never wasted, for its value does not rest upon reciprocity. It's not about what they can give to us, but what we give in display of the beauty of God. The other thing we see about this beauty is that it's beauty in action the dead and the static is rarely beautiful. And What Paul displays in this passage is that love is not a passive feeling. It's not a philosophical ideal up here in the clouds. It is an active seeking of the good of others. Greek and English aren't the same. And we may read this and see a list of adjectives here, but everything Paul uses in these verses from verse 4 through verse 7 in fact beyond verse 7 they are active verbs if you think about those, some of those early reading books see Jane run, see Dick play it seems a little bit simplistic but love endures love does this, love does that, love chooses not to do that love chooses not to do this, love is not this way While the passage helps us understand what love is, it does us by telling us what love does and what love is unwilling to do. The beauty of love is in the seeking of the good of others in the name of God and actively living that out. You you might think of a a piano teacher working with a, a student who's struggling a little bit. And they can tell them how to play better, tell them to practice more, but what they might do is they might take them to a concert of a piano master and put on display before them how beautifully they play. See how they sit there with their good posture See their timing, see their attention to this, the way their feet work the pedals. And suddenly that struggling musician isn't just saying, what do I need to do better, but is captivated by what they might be able to do, both through the demonstration and the beauty of what is before them. And the picture of this beautiful love that Paul is talking about is found in the example of Jesus who perfectly imaged his Father in heaven, who is love. The, the beauty of love is not a human ideal. The beauty of love is not even in the good that we can do for others actively. But the beauty of this love is because it reflects the character of God, who is love himself. One of the most important passages for so many people is the simple truth of John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he sent his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. What's the condition upon which that action is taken? For God so loved. The motivation for sending Christ, the motivation for Christ's death on the cross, the motivation for us to share in eternal life comes out of the loving character of God. God is love. He cannot not love you. He cannot not love me. And he has shown that love toward us in the sending of his son. He has shown that love to us by telling us what love is and love isn't when we tend to confuse what we want for what's right. And he has loved us enough to save us from our false and hurtful attempts at love and to replace it with his love in Christ. Have you seen that beauty? Have you tasted of it? For the first time? Or have you returned to that well for love? The God of the universe is love and offers you the experience of love in himself in his son sent to live and die for you so that you could know him, the God of love. And so that through you, others might know that same love. When we see such love, when we taste of it, we want to offer it. But let's be honest, for all the beauty of love, for all that's attractive about being these types of people, for for the world to read these passages of scripture and not want anything to do with Jesus, not want to do anything with the church, but say, we like these verses, we need to acknowledge that it can be hard. That the love that's described here is sacrificial, that it is tiring. And so it can be tempting to do other easier things than love in this way. And so Paul points the Corinthians to the future of love. Not only is love necessary, not only are we compelled to love in this way because it's beautiful and reflective of God's beauty, but because of the future of love. Verse 8 says, love never ends. He then goes on to describe how prophecies and tongues and knowledge will pass away. But love remains. As the Corinthians have become focused on gifts, particularly the gift of tongues, they think this is angelic, they think they've arrived. We've reached spiritual maturity. We're so spiritually mature, we're not going to engage in sexual relations between married couples. We're, we've so arrived that we're going to speak in the tongues of angels. We've so arrived that, that suffering for the sake of the gospel is below us. And so Paul contrasts love with these spiritual gifts. He uses knowledge, and this is kind of like special wisdom about who God is and what he said, which they valued. He uses tongues, which they are particularly focused on. And he also uses prophecy, which earlier in the prior passage he said was a higher gift that they should seek. He uses all three of these to point that for all of their good, for all the good of tongues, for all the good of knowledge and prophecy, their future is to fade away while love remains. They will all pass away. This is less an explanation of the cessation of certain spiritual gifts, and that's something we'll come back to again in verse uh, in chapter fourteen, but but Paul is hinting that that something is happening here that is not permanent for the life of God's people for all eternity, that there is going to be an ending of what's going on right now, And if you read the Old Testament and you actually pay attention to the timeline, it's not full of miracles that miracles show up in particular times when God is doing something, when he's delivering his people out of captivity, when he is establishing the kingdom, when he is prophetically speaking to try to save his people from their wayward ways. And so it is with Jesus, who through the Spirit and his power displays all kinds of miracles and healings and signs because the kingdom is breaking in. But the breaking in of the kingdom with Jesus' arrival is not the end of the story. The end of the story is not that Jesus died on the cross. It's not even that he rose again from the dead. The end of the story is that he's coming back to make all things new. And so Paul is placing these good things in the context of eternity. He he talks about when he was a child. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. We can read that and say, Paul is saying, you guys are so immature. I don't think that's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, you guys are children right now. You think you're mature, but you're still children. And that's okay. It's normal for children to crawl. It's normal for babies to eat food that's not solid but it's not appropriate for us to think that that's where children should stay paul is saying the day and age in which we're living one day will fade away one day will pass away one day we will come to adulthood and we'll put aside these things we're not going to need special revelations of knowledge and prophetic insights because we will know fully as we're fully known because we will not see indirectly but we will see face to face The Corinthians made mirrors. And and so for Paul to say, uh, we see in a mirror dimly, might come across as an insult. Uh, And it's not that that translation is inappropriate, but it probably means more indirectly. It's not like, hey, this is a bad quality mirror, you can't see the person. But we only see things as a reflection, not truly face-to-face. We only see things partially. But when God comes, we're not going to need these insights Because what we're going to have is Him. But what will remain is trust in Him. What will remain is hope that He is good and all that He says will come true. And what will certainly remain is love. Because that is who God is. Charisma and gifts can create a following. Great acts of faith can impress. Sacrificial service may inspire, but they don't last. But love does. There are some younger people in our neighborhood than my own family, and it pains me to say I'm not young anymore. But I notice the difference between the things that they buy and I buy. There's, there's a lot of um, dirt bikes and jet skis and Domino's delivery and such things. And when you're young and you have some money and you have a job, it's really tempting because to buy those things produces fun. You, you want something to eat, you, you buy it, you get it. You, you want to go on the lake with your friends, will you rent the jet ski or buy the jet ski? You, you want to travel Europe, you can buy that trip and go and explore. That immediate ability gives immediate feedback. They don't save, they don't invest, they don't buy homes often, or we're tempted not to. Because those things we don't always get the immediate enjoyment of, right? The, the, the blessing of saving for retirement is something that can feel so far away. And the temptation is when we're loving other people, when they don't respond, when they're not grateful, when they're not impressed by us, when they don't treat us the same way as to say, this isn't worth it. I would rather be impressive. I would rather do this great act of service. I would rather show my power and impress people and get the applause and get the attention. Paul knows that temptation, that desire for immediate feedback. But he says, don't feed into that. Rather invest in learning to love now, for love will be with us for eternity. It's hard. It takes time and energy. It requires self-denial. But it is preparation for eternity, for life with God and his people, with whom we will live for all eternity. When we are tempted to act or, or react, to try to work to accomplish something, to try to just solve the problem to make things better, we may be after good things, or we may want good results. However, we need to ask, Will it have lasting significance if it's not out of love? In love, not insisting on your own way when you're making plans with your friends. In love, showing patience when your children are exasperating you. Forgiving a coworker in love who undermines your work. Lovingly investing in the poor and the needy around you. These aren't just good ideas. They're not just ways to have a happy household or ways to contribute to society. They are demonstrations of the eternal character of God and preparation for our eternal life with Him. Brothers and sisters, sometimes church can be hard. Sometimes the people sitting next to us in the pews can be hard. Sometimes I know I can be difficult for you. We come to church and we expect to be loved. And that is an appropriate expectation that the church should be a place of love reflecting the love of God. But if we love one another, instead of running... When the church doesn't love us the way that we should, we should be like Paul, who points out the lack of love and, in response to that lack of love, loves. Because not only are the people around us, the family of God, supposed to be those that love us, but they are the people that we learn to love with by enduring them when they are frustrating, by not being irritable when they hurt our feelings. By not being resentful and remembering that the thing that they said to us five years ago. By seeking what is good for the rest of the body. By always trusting ourselves to them. Always giving them opportunities, not being cynical. We have in the church the opportunity to learn the language of love by the action of love. Because we're preparing to love one another for all eternity. One of the most enduring symbols of love in our culture is the diamond engagement ring. In fact, a lot of the people that aren't here this morning at church I know have been away at weddings or are away at weddings right now. And the first thing often when a young woman gets engaged is when they tell people is they often ask, well, show me the ring, right? Their friends want to see the ring. Here's the thing about diamond engagement rings the use of diamond engagement rings is only about 60 or 70 years old. It's been done throughout history at various times, but the assumption that you get engaged by giving a woman a diamond engagement ring only started in the 40s with the De Beers Jewelry Company because they had a lot of diamonds to sell. And the thing was, they communicated how diamonds are a great picture of love. That you can say, I need you so much, I want you so much in my life, that I would be willing to spend so much money to value you. That that they would take a diamond with its beautiful shine as a picture of the beauty and value of that person. And the thing about diamonds is they're the hardest material on earth. They don't tarnish, they don't fade, they don't crack. Pointing to the eternality, the enduring nature of love. If the beers can get that about love as a marketing ploy, how much more should the church who has experienced the grace and love of God, who saw nothing in us but death and sin and still chose to free us, to rescue us, to show us his love so that we could enjoy that for eternity? Brothers and sisters, we need love. And it's a beautiful thing, and it is an eternal thing. Praise God that he loved us before we first loved him, and we can walk in that love towards others. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for your love. And pray, Lord, that we would taste of it afresh this morning and every day whether we are coming to experience your love and forgiveness for the first time, or this is the 40,000th time. May we drink deeply of your love and enact that love for your glory. Amen.